We oftentimes, when it comes to maybe Easter or Christmas, we'll take a break from the series that we're, we're going through, but it just so happened that we came across kind of the perfect passage, and as I was mapping this out, I was like, oh, I'm going to be preaching the same sermon like two weeks in a row. So I thought, well, why don't we just preach this on Easter Sunday? So uh, to be really clear, though, we will get to Jesus' resurrection. We're not going to miss out on Easter uh, but let me give just a brief review here for those of you who haven't been with us in Acts. Um, the book of Acts records the start of Jesus' church, okay? And there's all these significant events and people and stuff that's going on. So at the very beginning, you know, God comes to his people, a group of people just gathered in a house, and he pours out his Holy Spirit, okay? And then he begins to form his church. And this is a real kind of solid foundational experience that's happening as the church is formed. God's spirit comes and is poured out on them. Okay? And we talked recently about a conversion of a man named Saul. Okay? Saul was the least expectant person to be converted. He was killing Jesus' church, literally. Okay? He was imprisoning followers of Jesus. He hated them. And yet God comes to him and he saves this man who completely did not deserve it. And so the book of Acts is this riveting story where we're, we're confronted with these great stories. And it's not just the stories and the people, it's where they're happening as well. We mentioned a number of weeks in the beginning how these significant events were happening outside of the temple. Okay, and this location is really important as well because God is moving from coming and meeting with his people in the temple to meeting with them everywhere and anywhere. Okay, and so the, the barriers of the law are being destroyed and God is moving beyond some of the expectations that have been created in the Old Testament. We also have talked about the suffering that Jesus' church endured as there were many people who opposed Jesus and wanted to see its demise. And this is a theme that's going to continually come up in stories throughout the book of Acts. These aspects that I've mentioned and others are things that are going to pop up in our story today as well. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 looking at verses 32 to 43. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can slide or you can swipe there if you want. Okay, I'm just making sure you guys are seeing what I'm seeing. So, all right, um, let's read through this. <clears throat> now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay, 
So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas... Okay, sorry. I'm having some uh, technological issues, so you just have to bear with me. That Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, so what we're finding here, or actually, first of all, what what we're going to try to accomplish this morning is, I want to talk about Peter, because we're introduced to him here, and then we're going to talk about the story of Aeneas and Tabitha, and then eventually we're going to get to Jesus as well. Are you guys seeing any of this stuff up here as well? Okay. All right. So I may just have to shut this down at some point, but we'll, we'll try and bear with it as, if we can. Okay. So one of the things that happens uh, when you're reading Acts, is that there are all of these different names and locations. And I think it's easy for us to maybe get thrown off by these realities, okay? Because it's like, all right, we're talking about Peter, then we're going to Aeneas, then we're going to Tabitha, okay? That's a lot going on. And then we're talking about Joppa and Sharon and Lida as well. And there's all these different people and locations, and it can feel a bit overwhelming. But I'm going to encourage you to try not to get lost in those realities. And we'll try to get to kind of the main point here as we work through this. I'm going to just restart this here quick and see if that'll help us so that I can control this a little bit better. Okay, so we'll see if that comes back or not. So we are introduced to Peter in this section of verses. And last week we had been focused on Saul and the gospel ministry um, that he was engaged in. But now we've moved on to Peter, okay? And Peter has a significant role throughout this book, but not just this book, but also throughout the biblical story, okay? And so what we find with Peter is that, first of all, he is one of Jesus' apostles, okay? So there were 12 men who walked closely with Jesus. They were his closest of friends. But then also there was an inner circle of three, okay? And Peter was one of those Three. Now, Peter is also known for betraying Jesus in that in the lead up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, he denied being close to Jesus or knowing Jesus. Okay, so in a sense, he was a sellout. He disowned Jesus 
But in a display of amazing grace, Jesus comes back to Peter after his resurrection and he forgives him. He restores him to the ministry that Jesus has called him into. And not just the ministry, but even more importantly, into relationship with Jesus, okay? And so even in this, we see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of grace. Jesus comes to this man who has disowned him and he brings him back, he saves him, he welcomes him in, and he doesn't say, just sit on the sideline and you can kind of observe. He see, you know he's going to play a crucial part in everything that's going to unfold after this. Also, we see here this descriptor of the saints, okay? And this is a, a description that's going to come up throughout the book of Acts, So this is not a description of someone who has led a heroic spiritual life and then died and then been recognized by the church for their virtuous life. That's not what's being talked about here. The usage of saint in the book of Acts describes Christians, everyday, normal followers of Jesus. So anyone who's here this morning who is trusting in Jesus and been saved by Jesus would be considered a saint. Okay, so Peter is traveling to various churches, and he comes to Lydda, and he finds a man named Aeneas. It says that Aeneas has been bedridden for eight years, okay? And this detail sheds some light for us on Aeneas. In an agrarian society, he was not useful. Okay? He was laying in a bed. He also was likely poor. He had nothing to offer to others. So we would look at Aeneas's life and say he's unimpressive. But Peter comes right to him and he addresses him and then notice the explicit statement that it's made. Jesus Christ heals you. There was to be no mistaking how Aeneas was healed. It wasn't some impressive skill that Peter possessed on his own. This was Jesus working miraculously. And so a paralyzed man is no longer paralyzed. He can now get out of his bed on his own and walk under his own strength, but not because of Peter and what he had done, but because of the powerful healing name of Jesus working through Peter. What's also clear is that Aeneas rose immediately. Okay, so there was no question about his healing. It wasn't a progressive healing. It was a total healing. And the result of this, as people saw Aeneas and heard about Aeneas, is that many people turned to Jesus. They recognized what had happened as an outrageously good thing. A life, a physical life, had been profoundly changed. And as people saw this and heard about this, they turned towards Jesus. Meaning they trusted in him. Now, There's no further dwelling on this story. Because part of me wants to stop here. Like, I want to know more of the details of what's going on here. Like, who are these people who are turning to Jesus? What are their stories? What happened for Aeneas in the days that followed? 
I want to know the joy that he experienced. But Acts 9 moves us forward and leads us immediately into another healing. Peter now heads to a city named Joppa where we learn of a woman named Tabitha, and she's described as full of good works and acts of charity. This woman who had loved sacrificially many other people became ill, and she died, which then caused significant distress for her community, for those who loved her and who had been loved by her. And there's an interesting detail here. It says, they washed her, laid her in an upper room. Now, some of this is probably normal, but some of this is probably not normal procedure. The effects of decomposition would typically cause people to begin a process of removing or disposing of the body. But these folks had different plans because they'd heard Peter was in the area. And so they sought him out in hopes of, of a miracle. This is really fascinating, what they're doing here. Some of us might say it's, it's gross, right? Like if we actually enter into that scenario and the, the possible decomposition, what would compel someone to pursue this type of action? I mean, maybe they're in so much pain Right? They're so sad. They don't want to let her go. But the reason Peter is sought out is because he's a follower of the one who has died and came back to life. There has been some kind of an experience of God's power being seen and manifested in and through his followers. There is a belief in God's spirit and what he can do. He can and does work in ways that are beyond the normal human experience. So Peter came to Joppa. He prayed for Tabitha and she was healed. She was dead and became alive. In one sense, as we read this, the, the way it reads here in Acts 9 is so normal. She's raised from the dead and presented to family and friends, and then we're informed that Peter is going to stay in Joppa many days with a man named Simon. And then the story goes on. There's this reality that this is normal for God. Resurrection is normal for Jesus. He takes dead things and he makes them alive. We live in a world that's broken by sin and wrecked by death, but Jesus' whole endeavor was to mend things, to redeem things, to take dead things and make them alive, to take, take things that are wrong and make them right, to heal things, to awaken people. So here's the reality about the Christian faith. It's not taking bad people and making them good. That's not what Christianity is about. It's taking dead people and making them alive. Spiritually dead people, which is true for every person who is born, and taking them, piercing their hearts and their souls, and making them spiritually alive. This is what Christianity is about. This is what Jesus is about. 
And this is Jesus' nature. This is what he's done for Tabitha. And this is what we're celebrating today. Resurrection, death to life. This is the ground of the Christian faith. This is the ground of all good news. This is Jesus doing what we clearly cannot do in and of ourselves. Otherwise, we would. And many of us still try to do this through our own good works. I've got to be better, do better. So we end our sermons, and if you're normal here at Center Church, you're probably like, oh, we're ending our sermon already. We're at gospel. Okay, this one's extended, okay? All right. Don't hold your breath, all right? Okay, so we end our sermons here at Center Church with what we call gospel application, okay? So here's the reality. The gospel is going to call us to do things, okay? We, we, we know that. Like, the Christian life is filled with things that we are going to do, okay? But our belief is that as we believe in Jesus, he will compel us to do those things. He will empower us to do those things, okay? But in our tendency, in our legalistic, moralistic tendency, our efforts to save ourselves, to be impressive, to look good, we oftentimes will skip over the belief piece and say, what are all the things that I need to do, okay? So when we come to this point in our service, and in many sermons, what happens is you end a service with application, right? Here are the things that you need to do or you can do. This is what it'll look like for you to be a good Christian this week. Okay, we're not, we're not against being a good Christian, okay? But we believe that'll take care of itself. If we believe the gospel, if we know who Jesus is, if we understand that he takes dead things and makes them alive, all of that other stuff will take care of itself, okay? So we want to focus on who Jesus is and what he's done and then trust his Holy Spirit to work in us and through us for the glory of his name. So I have two points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, don't let the miracle get in the way of the miracle. What do I mean by this? Don't let the physical miracle overshadow the spiritual miracle. Maybe because we live in our Western context, when we read stories like this, I think it's easy for us to disconnect. For the most part, we can oftentimes just read over stories like this. We read it and it's like, oh, this person was healed and then it's on to the next healing. And then someone else was raised from death to life. And then we're talking about um, Peter hanging out with Simon in Joppa. And then we're just on, right? And what we find oftentimes is amazement is lacking. That, that we're just not struck by these stories. Or maybe we read them longingly. And we're like, I wish that would happen. Or maybe we're struck by it and we put all kinds of emphasis on the idea of physical healing and we think that that's the whole point. But it, it's not. Here at Center Church, we don't say physical healing is meaningless. We don't believe that. 
we pray regularly for people to be healed. One of the individuals in our community was diagnosed with terminal cancer in his early 40s. And two and a half years later still, we pray regularly for his healing from cancer. We trust that Jesus can and does work in these ways. So we're not against physical healing. But physical healing isn't the point. It's never the main point. Tabitha still died, eventually. Aeneas still died. And so for us today, this is instructive. There has to be more. It's not just physical healing, though that is great, and we would praise Jesus' name for that. Behind these physical healings is Jesus' death and resurrection. The intention is that any healing would drive us there. In both of these stories, there was a clear communication about what resulted out of these healings. In the first story, it says people turned to Jesus. In the second story, it says many believed in the Lord or in Jesus. Okay. What that's saying is miracles were occurring. To get to the point where people can say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease is a spiritual miracle. To get to the point where people will say, in following Jesus, I am willing to deny myself. I've got all of these preferences, and all of us have a ton of preferences. I am willing to deny myself these preferences. All of us have dreams in this life. To get to the point where we say, I am willing to give up my dreams and let Jesus give me new dreams. That's the evidence of a spiritual miracle. Or for people to say, I am willing to lose my life for the sake of Jesus. That's not normal. It's one thing to say that, okay? It's another thing to live that. When someone lives that, that's evidence of belief in Jesus. They are giving themselves up, dying to themselves, because they have been made alive by one who is greater than themselves. So you can't say those things and then live consistent with that statement unless the fact that Jesus died and rose has gripped you. Unless we understand that Jesus' death was for our sin and our sin is great. Our sin is not a small thing. Unless we understand that all victory, all victory is wrapped up in Jesus. It is a stunning miracle to go from living for oneself to living for Jesus. And this is a miracle we cannot create on our own. So every day, if we wake up and we have any semblance of grace, any semblance of God's kindness to us, any desire, even if it's faint and small, to want to turn to Jesus and trust Him, 
any desire to call on his name is evidence of the fact that he has and is and will do a miracle in us. And so I think our tendency is to look at spiritual miracles as less than physical miracles. If Jesus would just do this thing, then I could believe. No, the main thing is spiritual miracles. Physical miracles serve that greater purpose. So if you find yourself here today and Jesus has reached into your heart and he saved you, you have undergone a miracle just like Tabitha, greater than Tabitha. And the intention is, when we understand Jesus for who he is and what he does, that it would grip us. It would take our breath away. We would understand he is so great. And he is worthy for us to give more and more of our lives to. So don't let the miracle get in the way of the miracle. Secondly, the offer to believe in Jesus is for all. When we read the Bible, a really helpful tool in reading the Bible is that of contrast. And it's not accidental the differences we see in the two people we read about in Acts 9. Okay? Aeneas and Tabitha. One is paralyzed. One has no usefulness. One is unable to do anything for himself. The other did tons of useful things. People are there because they're grieving because of all the good works and acts of charity that she did for them. If we looked at this from a distance, we might reason Tabitha deserved it. She worked hard. She did good works. But Tabitha needs saving just as much as Aeneas did as well. And the gospel is for all people. Everyone is undeserving. Tabitha's good works are only possible because of Jesus' ultimate good work. Any goodness in this world is a reminder of Jesus' grace, of his goodness towards us. So if you're going to go and you're going to eat a good Easter meal after this, when you taste that good food, whatever it might be, that's intended to stir the inner parts of you, to be reminded of the goodness of God, that he deserves to be worshipped. Don't worship the food. Enjoy it to the glory of God's name. Okay? That's true for food. It's true for hobbies. It's true for a comfortable bed that you'll, you'll lay in. It's true for a puppy that you might own, right? Like, it's true for any good thing in this world, okay? It's intended to remind you God is kind and he is good and his grace is amazing. So whether you view your sin as great or not, Jesus offers, our offer stands. Now, if your sin is not great, meaning 
you don't see it as great or big, you won't see much need of Jesus' death on the cross. And then his resurrection might not seem that profound. But the story of the Bible, and we just talked about this a couple weeks ago earlier in Acts 9, is that everyone's sin is great, and we all do need Jesus. We have no hope outside of him. So my invitation for all of us this morning, whether that's for the first time or for the thousandth time, is that we would trust in Jesus to give ourselves over to him, and not just to intellectually ascend, oh, I believe there's a God, but to give your life over to him. To believe that his forgiveness of sin is actual good news for your specific sin. That his victory over sin and death and hell and evil will not change. The fact that he has triumph will be true forever but to understand that triumph only comes through faith in him. When you go back and you read the account, the gospel accounts of what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead, what happened in his followers? Belief occurred. Belief occurred. Right after Jesus' death, his followers were terrified, locked in rooms, scared, fearful, probably lying in the fetal position. There wasn't a lot of faith, just fear. They went into hiding because they were scared for their lives. They were devastated at their loss. But what follows Jesus' resurrection in the lives of Jesus' followers is one of the greatest affirmations legitimizing Jesus' resurrection. These individuals who were scared and hiding and terrified run into the face of those who are trying to kill Jesus and his church. What happened? What happened to turn fearful men and women into being filled with boldness and courage and faith in Jesus? It's not just madness, okay? Madness would tap out at the point of death. Okay, all right, fine, I'll give it up because he must not have actually risen from the dead. No, it happened. And this legitimizes this reality. The faith in Jesus' followers following his resurrection shows something profound happened. And that profound thing was Jesus rose from the dead. And it shaped their everyday lives. And it's intended to shape our everyday lives here and now today as well. So the invitation then for us is believe. Believe in the greatest news this world has ever known and will ever know.